Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Claude Barabee, the author of The Philippine Pact, a Connor Stark novel. Connor Stark's private security company is training elements of the Philippine Navy on a remote island when terrorists take over the island and try to help China establish a foothold in the western Pacific. Only Stark's team stands in their way. Dr. Claude Barabee is the author of six books, including two Connor Stark novels besides this one, and On Wide Seas, the U.S. Navy in the Jacksonian Era. In addition to being an author and naval historian, he was a commander in the Navy Reserve, worked in the U.S. Senate, and he taught at the U.S. Naval Academy. Claude Barabee, welcome. Thank you very much, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, glad to get you on here. I know your your books have been in the pipeline for a little while, and uh, real excited to have the Philippine Pact out there. And it seems uh, very timely, the subject matter. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, I know it's fictionalized, but are there some things in this we should be concerned about? And kind of give us an overview of it. I think there are three things that have been popping up on the radar if you're following the news closely. The first is the use of mercenaries and engineers there. And in this book, there is actually a Russian mercenary uh, working for the Chinese. Uh, The second issue is the growth of the Chinese Navy. They are now, in reality, the largest in these what are called gray zones. And the third thing is, it just came up here in the news in the past couple of months, is this little island in the south of the Philippines, Balabac Island, is part of uh, these these military uh, partnership and exercises between the Philippines and the United States. I didn't know that when I first wrote the book, uh, that Balabac would be one of the sites. So in the book, Connor Stark and his private maritime security company find themselves working with the Philippine government, the Philippine Navy, in Balabac when they have to deal with both terrorists and the Chinese Navy. Oh, so like U.S. naval intelligence is is going to be banging on your door or anything, are they? (laughs) You know, I I worked for them for many years, and I was a career intelligence officer in the reserves. And uh, they're they're not banging on my door, but uh, I think I got one or two things right when I was working for them. I may have gotten a couple things wrong, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) you talk about these little islands, but I know the Chinese are also like taking coral reefs and turning them into de facto aircraft carriers or air bases. Um, I'm sure that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, there's, there's nothing that's been done to counter that. Uh, they, and they truly are little reefs uh, in, at high tide. Uh, you would not have seen some of these reefs and at low tide, they said, well, there's a, there's a reef and that's part of our seas. So they would then bring in sand, they bring in concrete yeah. and then they'd say, well, this is just for commercial fishing. And then they'd, they put in airstrips and anti anti uh, aircraft batteries and, parks uh, if you look at some of the satellite imagery commercial imagery today you'll see the growth of these these islands and they truly are uh, island island aircraft carriers if you will and far more i think far more powerful in many ways now and i don't know a whole lot about the treaties around international waters and boundaries but i'm suspecting there might be something there that if it's within their territorial waters then they occupy it maybe put some structure on it, put some people on it, whether they're permanent or not. 
does that then extend their territorial waters according to international treaties, or is that all in dispute? Absolutely. Uh, that's a great observation. In fact, I spoke to a maritime uh, lawyer uh, while I was working on the book. I spoke to a number of specialists to make sure I got some things right. But this is this is a very Mahanian view, if you will. Alfred Thayer Mahan recommended uh, during the late 1800s that we look at islands because that would extend our territory. What that does is if you have a piece of, of, of land in the middle of the sea, it your sovereign territory then extends for 12 nautical miles right around that. Right. And then what gets questionable is the 200 nautical mile uh, economic exclusive zone. Correct. But for all intents and purposes, if you have enough of those islands in the South China Sea, which they do now, you know, you can add up all it's again, it's 12 miles in one direction, 12 nautical miles in the other direction. And that becomes uh, sovereign Chinese territory and disputed. Yeah. So we've been sailing through the South China Sea forever. Um, mm -hmm. I'm guessing they get a little bit upset now. If we... It's going to be a lot tougher. Well, you know, uh, they, there's some indication that when we sent a carrier uh, strike group through the Taiwan Strait, uh, uh -huh. and I'm sorry, it's either 96 or 98, my mind's blanking right now, but when it went unimpeded uh, or undeterred, the Chinese then made the decision to grow their Navy as quickly as possible and to prevent any other incursion in what they viewed as their strait. And it really starts at that point. Um, it's it's an incredible growth uh, in such a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. So you, it's one of the things you mentioned here in the opening, and as you were saying it, I'm. I know we had a prior conversation too. Uh, it, it's it's almost like, uh, you know, they're this emerging nation like we were at the end of the 19th century, and we're more like Spain with the smaller aging fleet. Taiwan could be uh, Cuba, and, you know, we could have a main incident, like back in 1898, you know. That is absolutely spot on. In fact, I've had a couple of articles and given a couple of talks. I gave a major talk to the Navy League of the United States last fall, in which I suggested we were Spain of 1898, and China is the United States. And I, I looked at the force structure, the composition of both navies back then and today, uh, I looked at, you know, sometimes there's hubris uh, with great powers, thinking nobody else can come along and take your role. And I think that's what what has happened to us for a number of reasons. Number one, we, we haven't been a maritime nation. We don't have that many merchant ships anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're down to about 70 or 80 U.S. flagged merchant ships or U.S. owned. And China has uh, something like 4,000. Uh, ships in uh, applying the oceans. Those are just the, some of their larger ships. So when we no longer have a large merchant fleet, when we no longer have a lar the largest Navy, then, you know, the average American doesn't understand because they don't have family members working in the shipyards or supporting programs that build ships or have family members who are sailing uh, on the oceans. So we've become detached as a nation from our maritime heritage in many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for those listening who don't know the history of 1898, uh, there was a war called the Spanish-American War that was very lopsided, and the United States gained uh, a lot of territory, including the Philippines, mm -hmm. Cuba, Puerto Rico, 
I don't know, some other things, I, I suppose. And it it sort of was the uh, the end of Spain as a colonial power, for sure. Um, it definitely was. And again, I, I turned to the secretary, uh, Sigismundo Bermeo, and he thought that he, he underestimated the United States Navy. Uh, but his top admiral, Admiral Silvera, came back into service and would fight and lead his sailors and ships at, at the Battle of Santiago uh, off of Cuba. And even then, uh, he, he knew what he was getting into. He wrote letters to Bermeo, and the Americans treated him like a hero. In fact, he and 40 of his officers, after they were captured, their ships had been uh, sunk, uh, were POWs here in Annapolis, Maryland, at the Naval Academy. And again, they were treated like heroes by the local community. We have hundreds and hundreds of fan mail letters coming from Americans to Admiral Cervera here in our collection at the Naval Academy. Wow. Well, we need to take a break. We're talking to author Claude Barabee, the author of The Philippine Pact. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent and diverse authors. Check out the agency books imprint for detective stories, tales of law enforcement, espionage, terrorism, spy thrillers, and more. Among the works available, KGB Banker by William Burton McCormick, The Apologist, a Luke Lundy novel by A.A. Weiss, and Douglas Brody's Sand or A Once Upon a Time in the Jazz Age. Find these and other fascinating books at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Claude Barraby, and we are, I guess you could say, uh, worrying about the United States Navy and the Chinese Navy and the South China Sea and, um, you know, that region around Taiwan and the Philippines. And we have this novel, The Philippine Pact. So what's the scenario? What is uh, Connor Stark here, our protagonist, getting into? So Connor Stark is a former naval officer who... uh, was disgraced early, early in his career uh, that we, we learn about in the first novel. In this case, he's now back in charge of his private maritime security company, which has ships, and they provide support uh, for security around the world. And in this case, they're providing some training opportunities to the Philippine Navy on uh, base security, on maritime security, especially with regard to illegal fishing. And in the middle of this, they find that uh, the base that they had been supporting has uh, been under attack and they have to figure out who's behind the attack and more importantly, how to defend themselves because they are now uh, separated from the rest of the world. They have uh, no communications. The Philippines has been essentially shut down uh, by a big cyber attack and they've got to rely on their wits and whatever tools they have at their disposal to uncover this mystery. Yeah, and we don't want to spoil the outcome here. We'd love for everybody to <laughs> buy the book and read it. <laughs> but uh, you at know. the end, Harrison, yeah, at the end, Harrison Ford comes down in Air Force One. Uh, you know, that's, uh, get off of my island. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was uh, listening to something this week where they were talking about uh, China's expansionism and. China's strategy, which might not be so overtly military, you know, as Sun Tzu apparently said, it's better to win without a fight, win by um, conquering your neighbor in other ways, whether that's psychologically, economically, or 
or whatever means. And it, it seems like, you know, we have these different dimensions today that are in conflict. Uh, and you mentioned cyber warfare, which is an area that, you know, I've been in IT for 40 years. So I know a little bit about the worries that we have for security, uh, you know, and networks and so on. And what can happen when you're attacked, in fact, one place I was at this past week, we had a denial of service attack from Moldova, of all places, coming at our little operation. And so they're like, you know, you have these cyber criminals, uh, but you never know what their motives are. You know, and are they are they working for a nation state? Are they working for some criminal organization? Are they just a hacker? Whatever. But when you have the nation states that are at war on cyber, it can be um, really uh, debilitating. So, or, yeah, or or in this case, uh, it may be a third party that is working on behalf of a company. Right. And throughout my books, there there is a Chinese-based company. Uh, the CEO is this uh, nefarious character named Hu, and he he appears in all the books. And they they work very closely in these gray zones. Exactly, and you're exactly right. How does China? undermine a lot of the efforts around the world. And I'll give you an interesting example. I was down in the Caribbean about 15 years ago. I went to about six islands and I saw all these big Chinese construction projects. They were building cricket stadiums, which, you know, per capita is actually a pretty big project for some of these smaller islands. And I asked the the local drivers, you know, what's going on? Oh, the Chinese are our friends. They're here to build things and help our economy. And I came back to the academy after that, and I spoke to our China, one of our China experts, and I just pointed out six island names, and I just said, "Talk about China and these island context." And he said, "Huh." Within the past two years, uh, four of those have changed their uh, recognition in the United Nations from mainland China to uh, from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China. Mm-hmm. So it's it's done in a lot of different ways and investing in ports. In the second novel, in fact, uh, the Chinese are investing heavily in the Sri Lankan ports, which did become to reality and supporting a terrorist effort there. Um, not not in reality in the book. They they'd supported the, Tamil, the new Tamil Tigers. But you see these things happening all around the world and you have to be aware of the spectrum of, of tools that a country has to exert its influence. And China has done that very, very well. It's a lot easier when you're, you know, a communist totalitarian government and you don't have opposition. Right. Uh, you know, we find in our country, it's really tough to you know, get the, the roads paved or uh, get bills paid on, on the federal mm-hmm. side because there is so much contention uh, in politics. You don't have that with China. And so they are able to move forward in a way militarily that we, we have problems with. Yeah, that's and, not to say we should be totalitarian. It's just right. Facts. Yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking about yeah, comparing your work to prior work, say by like a Tom Clancy who wrote more about Cold War confrontation between USSR, USA, NATO, uh, focusing in on maybe how spy organizations or intelligence organizations interacted, and the mystery around you know the secret sauce around that and how that worked or the technologies that were coming into the services. And, you know, you are talking about completely different dimensions here, 21st century, where it's uh, who's really working for who? you got a lot of these private 
entities, whose side are they on? Where do they get their money? And uh, then you got the whole cyber dimension, and you got space too. You got satellites and so on. That's really, I mean, we had those back in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. But there's a whole different uh, private network going on there too. So maybe talk a little bit about just compare yourself, contrast yourself to like a Tom Clancy novel. Sure. Um, I I try to keep my novels a lot shorter than Clancy's. I found toward the end, especially as they were going into the four or five hundred uh, page range, that were a little. Uh, far more complex than what I wanted, but I, I'd agree that, uh, like Clancy, I look at what the the current geopolitical situation is today. So that's why my topics may be different from Clancy's. Uh, but I try to have the subplots that that he did, and try to tie them all together toward the end. And I look at new tech. I I explored in this book are drones for a variety of purposes. And for that, I went up to a company just outside of Philadelphia and uh, spent some time with the CEO who toured me around with their products. And in fact, they're named, I asked, I asked Mike Piasecki, whose father was one of the, the, the uh, original helicopter uh, developers uh, back in the 40s. Uh, I asked him, I said, Mike, is it okay if I use your company's name in this? Because the, the products, I just like to use them in a different way than you're, you're envisioning them. And in fact, I'm going up uh, in about a week or two to meet with Mike again and give him a couple of copies of the book. And, and we're probably going to do a short video about the drones that I mentioned in the book uh, as he's explaining them. So I think it's always important to see what current, uh, current technologies are. But at the heart of every story, it's, they're human stories. Even if you look at, you know, to get off, off track, uh, Star Trek, Every there was a lot of technology in there, but yeah. at the heart of Star Trek were the human stories. How do people deal with situations, regardless of their technologies or not? Right, right. We're talking to Claude Barabee. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent authors and thinkers. Radio Free Press is our imprint for politics and social issues. Check out authors such as Pat LaMarche, author of Still Left Out in America, The State of Homelessness in the United States. Wingnuts, a field guide to everyday extremism in America by David Michael Slater. And A Year of Change and Consequences by Mark Single. Find out more by clicking the Books tab at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Claude Barabee, the author of The Philippine Pact. And uh, one area I'd like to get into is we're talking about different technologies and so on. I know, um, to what degree have you introduced AI into any of your novels? And is that a, is that a future thought or is, has that come up at all? Just curious. I, yeah, I haven't yet. Uh, I'm, I'm, in fact, it's a, a topic I'm currently studying uh, because I am, I'm a historian, you know, I, I, this is my seventh book, but my third novel, the rest have all been, you know, books on Congress, on private security companies, and naval right. history books. So I have, I have to come through understanding this at a very basic level. And AI is really, uh, you know, I've been, what I see, this is really uh, problematic is an understatement. Yeah. There are some great opportunities for it. But something that can get out of control either by a state, an individual, or a third-party organization, you know, I think we've seen a lot of movies that start off this way, like, hey, this would be a great technology to help us out, and we see how the movies end. Uh, granted, those are fiction, but, you know, sometimes reality reflects fiction, not the other way around. 
I agree, and I I think that uh, if you think the private contractor, satellite, drone, all that technology, uh, and Chinese behavior and uh, methods are somewhat opaque, just wait till you put a layer of AI on that, and you've got a artificial intelligence trying to figure things out, and and uh, could it decide what side to be on by itself? Sort of taking Hal from 2001, but stick it over, uh, you know, in Taiwan or Beijing or D.C., and it, it could get very strange. So anyway, the food for thought for the future, of course. Um, yeah, I don't want to get too far off track because uh, your, your subject matter just gets me thinking about what's going on in the world and extrapolating all kinds of tangents here. So I'm going to bring us back to your series since we're on the last segment here. I know The Philippine Pact is one of several books that are Connor Stark novels. Maybe just talk a little bit about the others, and I know we're our goal is to bring those out as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, to the second editions uh, because I've revised them somewhat. Uh, the first book, The In Effect, uh, dealt with uh, Somali piracy in the Gulf of Aden, as well as a, a civil unrest in the country of Yemen. And uh, these are these are sometimes based on where I've been or something that I'm studying or writing about in in my nonfiction world. And that arose from my time being on a Navy cruiser doing Somali piracy operations and doing a few other things in that area. The sec- and the second book is uh, The Siren Song. That's about the uh, Tamil sea tigers in Sri Lanka, in the Indian Ocean, uh, excuse me, southeast of uh, India, and how they are supported by China in an effort. And Connor Stark finds himself there operating under a local letter of mark. Uh, to provide some surveillance and security. And that is, in each of those, I really tried to bring in uh, developing China because when the, I wrote the first book, that was it came out in 2012, I guess, and I wrote it in 08 or 09. And China was really just starting to appear in the Gulf of Aden. They were sending their very first flotillas. They've now sent 42 or 43 flotillas to the Gulf of Aden. They've established a base in Djibouti, so a lot of these things that I wrote about have come to fruition, uh, shockingly enough. So I think my next book will be about me making $10 million and retiring to a nice little farm in Maine. There you go. <laughs> would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I just keep thinking about naval uh, technology and, and uh, China having the largest surface fleet, but... Is having a large surface fleet really all that important anymore? Isn't it more about the submarines and the unmanned underwater vehicles that we might be working on? Uh, some of them might might not be very large and might have some very interesting capabilities. So, um, you know, I'm just wondering if they're maybe they're focusing on 20th century style dominance, or do you do you think they're on all levels and and uh, Thinking about well, I want to go back to yeah. I want to go back to a, an earlier question you asked, and uh, and, and observation about the Spanish American War. Keep in mind that we could have a fleet twice the size of China, and yet we would still bring in about a third of that to a potential fight in the South China Sea or in defense of Taiwan. Most of our fleet is not 
geared toward going to the Western Pacific. I mean, mm-hmm. you have ships uh, that are in dry dock for repairs that are doing something else. Uh, so if a war emerges, you're not going to bring in the entire U.S. fleet. And that is exactly what happened to the Spanish. The Spanish had to go to Cuba, and they already had a fleet in, in the Philippines. Uh, so the United States in the, had a great advantage because they were the, they were the home team fighting off of Cuba. They could bring more and diverse ships there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Philippines, Dewey almost ran out of both ammunition and fuel. If he hadn't won it at Manila Bay, he was in real trouble. And he had another, there was another Spanish fleet on the way. And if it hadn't been stopped in, in Egypt, uh, he'd have been in real trouble. So even if the, I can't, I don't know if the Chinese have more subs than us or not right now. I've got to double check. But even if they don't, even if they had three quarters of the number, they have to perform locally. They're, they're working within a few hundred miles of their ports. We're working on the other side of the world. That doesn't work in all cases, especially when we've abandoned essentially our industrial base. Uh, they have one shipyard. They have one naval shipyard that has more capacity than all of our naval shipyards combined, all seven of our shipyards. The CNO talks about this now openly. So they have this tremendous capacity. And now I want you to think about adding another layer where a couple of ships are sunk or or critically damaged. We don't have the capacity to repair those in a short period of time as we did in World War II in Pearl Harbor. We wouldn't be able to do that overseas or even over here. We just don't have the the shipyards. So, yeah, uh, submarines are, are important. They are now, I think they've finished construction on their third carrier. I think they're starting on their fourth in any uh, So it's very, it's tough to be dismissive in any way, shape, or form. And I've seen it happen even just last year on Capitol Hill. The then um, Hask Chair, House Armed Services Committee chairman, you know, uh, told, we should, told everybody we shouldn't freak ourselves out. Uh, and those were the words uh, about China's Navy and their capacity. Uh, so I, what I try to do, not only in my fiction, but in my nonfiction and my talks and my lectures at the Naval Academy, is show, yeah, maybe we should sort of freak ourselves out a little bit because this is a real threat. It is coming, and we've got to figure out a way to, to deter those in, in a variety of ways. Wow. Well... You are leaving us with a very stark view of the situation, <laughs> Dr. Barabi. Um, yeah, we got to wrap up here, maybe in the last uh, minute or so. What are you doing these days? Are you, do you have any opportunities to promote? Are you out um, talking about this specifically or any yeah, plans? Uh, yeah, I'll be out in West Virginia on a radio show uh, in studio here on Monday morning. Uh, I'll be doing some things up in Maine when I'm on vacation. I'm always working. And I've got a few other radio shows lined up, uh, newspaper interviews. And I'm also working on my next nonfiction book, which is a book about Admiral Rickover. Uh, his second wife, uh, his, the late Mrs. Rickover, bequeathed all of his personal papers, wow. uh, 100 boxes to uh, the museum, which I direct. And so I've been going through those for the past six months and I'm almost done researching that. So I've just got to work on that this summer as well. So I I try to always have a a book that's coming out and a book that I'm working on. And I try to switch it off between fiction and nonfiction to keep it, uh, to keep myself uh, on track. Awesome. Well, it's been great talking to you, Claude. Same here.
We've been talking to Claude Baraby, the author of The Philippine Pack. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.